You're listening to a sermon podcast from Agape Baptist Church, recorded live from our Sunday service. Good morning, church. The scripture reading for today is taken from Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 to 10. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Josh. A very good morning, everyone. The Lord bless you. Just want to encourage us uh, to be mindful of the giving to Sri Lanka. Uh, I think they're greatly in need and we want to support them as best as we can. So uh, whatever you give to the missions fund from today till Saturday, all of it will go uh, to Sri Lanka. All right, so I want to encourage you to have that in your mind. If you're not given yet, yeah, through the week, uh, do prayerfully consider and do give. All right. So we're down to the final sermon on uh, priestly prayers. Just a reminder, as priests, we are mediators. What are mediators? Mediators stand between God and man. We represent God before man. Uh, we do this through evangelism, through our work, through Christian ministry, and so on. But as mediators, we also represent man before God, and we do this primarily through prayer. So E.M. Bounds highlights how crucial this is when he says, talking to men for God is a great thing, but talking to God for men is greater still. He will never talk well and with real success to men for God who has not learned well how to talk to God for men. Now, oftentimes, our prayer life only comes alive and just for a short while because of a strong sense of need. Right? Maybe there's a crisis in the church, uh, maybe somebody's in need of urgent prayer, maybe there's some kind of spiritual attack, and for a while, maybe a couple of days, wow, our prayer life is like electrified, right? it comes alive. But once things stabilize, then our prayer life returns to kind of being mundane and routine and kind of aimless. We may have set aside time for prayer each day, but our minds drift we think of this, we think of that. At times, we lose track of what we were praying for. Right? Many times, our prayers feel aimless. Right? Because you know, every week, there's somebody who needs prayer for their health, for their job, for their family, and there's nothing wrong with these prayer requests, but it just feels like there's no end to them. And while we do want to support and you know, love uh, one another as we go through tough times, we can't help but wonder is this all there is to prayer, right? Is there nothing more? Yeah, so I'm sure, you know, many of us can relate with what I was talking about. Yeah, prayer can feel uh, quite a struggle. It's a struggle to sustain lasting, passionate prayer. And so this morning, uh, I kind of want to tell us the secret to lasting prayer. So we're looking at verse 10 of the Lord's Prayer this morning, and here Jesus teaches us, the second and the third petitions, right? These are the prayer requests that Jesus teaches us. And this is in verse 10. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is, as it is in heaven. And this is what we'll look at. Uh, firstly, praying till Jesus returns. Secondly, praying till all is right. And finally, praying till faith becomes sight. And people, this morning, I want to give us a vision to sustain Lasting, passionate prayer. So let's begin. 
praying till Jesus returns. Now, the second petition Jesus teaches us to pray is, your kingdom come. Now, we wonder, why must we pray this prayer? Isn't God already the king? Isn't this my father's world? Well, yes, as creator, God is king over all creation. But the reality is, God's kingdom is rejected everywhere. It's not only rejected out there, outside of the church among non-Christians, but even here in the church, even among Christians, even in our churches, even in our homes, God's kingdom is still rejected. In the Old Testament, the people of Israel complain and they nag to the prophet Samuel. They tell him, give us a king like the nations around them. And Samuel, he feels troubled, he feels burdened by the people's requests. But God says to Samuel, give the people the king they want. They are not rejecting you, Samuel, but they have rejected me as their king. And people, this is how we are even today. We don't want God to be our king. We rather have human kings, whether political leaders, leaders in academia, economic leaders, self-help gurus, even our pastors, Maybe we want to place ourselves as king. And because God is not king, we don't quite see the beauty of his kingdom. We don't think the poor in spirit are blessed. We don't think that mourning is worthwhile. We think being meek is foolishness. That hungering and thirsting for righteousness is a waste of time. That showing mercy is weakness. That being totally loyal to God is a lack of common sense. And being persecuted, being reviled for the name of Jesus is just not worth all that trouble and all that pain. Now, this is the state of our personal lives, our families, our churches, our society, not just in recent times, but for the longest of times. And so even more than 300 years ago, Matthew Henry would look at the state of our world around us and he would say, we must pray for the whole world of mankind, the lost world, and thus we must honor everyone. We must pray for the propagation of the gospel in foreign parts and the enlargement of the church by the bringing in of many into it. We must pray for all churches that are groaning under the yoke of tyranny. We must pray for the conviction and conversion of atheists, deists, infidels, and all who are out of the way of truth and of profane scoffers and those who disgrace Christianity by their vicious and immoral lives. We must pray for the amending of everything that is amiss, everything that's wrong in the church, the revival of primitive biblical Christianity and the power of godliness, and to that end, the pouring out of the Spirit for the breaking of the power of all the enemies of the church and the defeating of all their de designs against her. We must pray for the nations around us and all the countries of the world, for our own land and nation, which we ought in a special manner to seek the welfare of, that in its peace we may have peace. So in a world that rejects God as king, there is so much to pray for. Not only do we need to pray for our churches and for Christians, but we must pray for the loss. We must pray for the welfare of our nation and the nations around us. And we keep praying until God's kingdom comes. But here's the thing. The kingdom of God will not truly come until the king himself returns. 
The Gospel of Luke tells us that when Jesus was born 2,000 over years ago, there were people who were waiting expectantly for him. There was the man called Simeon. He's an old man. And he was praying that before he died of old age, he would see the Messiah, the Savior King. There was an elderly widow by the name of Anna. She spent years in the temple fasting and praying for the king to come and save Israel. And their prayers were answered with the birth of Jesus. And they saw the king. So Anna and Simeon, they knew that for the kingdom of God to come, the king himself must come. And so one of the final verses of the Bible in Revelation 22 is the declaration, Maranatha, come King Jesus, come. And the apostle Paul, he ends his first letter to the Corinthians in a similar way declaring, if anyone has no love for the Lord Jesus, let him be accursed. Maranatha, our Lord come. Those who do not love King Jesus will not love his kingdom, and they are cursed. But those who love King Jesus will love his kingdom, and they are blessed. Now, why is this the case? Why are they blessed? Because these are the ones who are poor in spirit, and when King Jesus comes, they will receive the kingdom of heaven. These are the ones who mourn, but they will be comforted. These are the meek ones, but they will inherit the earth. These are the ones who hunger and thirst for righteousness, but they will be satisfied. They are the merciful ones and they will receive mercy. They are the pure and loyal of heart and they will see God. They are the peacemakers and when King Jesus returns, they will be revealed as sons and daughters of God. And having been persecuted, their reward will be great in the kingdom of God. People, when was the last time you prayed for God's kingdom to come? When was the last time you cried out, Maranatha? Come, King Jesus, come. Now, if we would learn to pray for God's kingdom to come, our prayer lives would change radically. Jesus himself would become our vision in prayer. He would become the driving force of a lasting, passionate prayer life. And day by day, we would only grow in prayer until finally our prayers are answered when King Jesus returns. Let's come to part two of the sermon. Sorry. Praying till all is right. The third petition Jesus teaches us to pray is, your will be done. Now, I don't know about you, but sometimes what we will doesn't quite connect with what's in our hearts. Right? So, for example, my will, my will says I need to control my eating. My mind reminds me of my weight. Uh, it warns me regularly of the consequences if I don't do anything about it. But my heart says, I love ice cream. I would really like some roti prata. And my will goes in one direction, but my heart goes in another. So we can be half-hearted in that way. But there are also times where we can be whole-hearted yet in a wicked way. So when someone wrongs me, my heart says, that guy must pay. My mind supplies me with all the ways that I can make him suffer, and my will says, amen, let's do this. Right? There's a total alignment between my heart and my will, but often it's for the most 
wicked of things. Now, is God's will like our will? Is God's will disconnected from his heart? Or worse still, is God's will flowing out of a wicked heart? Now, people, we know God's will flows fully from his heart. And because his heart is good, God's will is also good. And we see this most clearly in creation. As God creates the heavens and the earth and all the animals along the way, God himself can't help but declare, this is good. And finally, after creating human beings, God proclaims, this is very good. God's good heart produces his good will, which produces very good outcomes. But when Jesus came to earth, he had a very different evaluation of creation. He saw the people, and Jesus declared that the people were lost. They were like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus called the people around him a faithless and twisted generation. And you would see Jesus spending days on end just healing the sick, casting out demons, teaching the word of God. Now, why did Jesus say these things? Why did he do these things? Because you see, everything is no longer good or very good. Instead, things are very bad. What we see around us is not God's goodwill for mankind and for the rest of creation. And everything Jesus did on earth was to restore God's goodwill once more here on earth. Now, what is God's goodwill? God's will is for relationships to be set right. God's will is for relationships to be set right. God's will is for his relationship with us, with you and me, to be set right, that his heart and ours would become aligned. God's will is for our relationships with one another to be set right, that we become of one mind and one heart, united in love. God's will is for our relationship with the rest of creation, with nature, with animals, with technology, with work. God's will is for our relationship with all these things to be set right. God's will is for right relationships to be restored. And so we pray, your will be done. Now, praying your will be done is actually one of the most liberating things we can pray. Firstly, because we know that it's coming, God's will is flowing out of a good heart. But the Apostle John also tells us in 1 John 5, and this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. Now, praying God's will be done is liberating because this is a prayer that we know will be answered. It is on God's good heart to establish his goodwill. And when we pray your will be done, we have the confidence that he will do it. Martin Luther put it like this. Prayer is not overcoming God's reluctance. Prayer is laying hold of his willingness. Now people, does this quote speak to you? Is God a very reluctant giver of good gifts to you? Do you hesitate to pray? Do you feel like God's will is completely opposed to what you want and what you need? 
Do you feel like you have to persuade God to do good to you and to the world around you? But the truth is God is good and God is willing and that is good news for you and me. People, I want to encourage you to pray. Pray until you see God's goodwill coming to pass around you. Pray until you see the relationships between God and people and creation being made right. And until all is right, keep praying, Lord, your will be done. We come to the final part. Praying till our faith becomes sight. We've come to the end of the first half of the Lord's Prayer. And here Jesus teaches us to pray on earth as it is in heaven. Now, this is not the fourth petition that Jesus is teaching us to pray. This is not a new prayer request that he's giving to us. But instead, on earth as it is in heaven, it supplements the previous two petitions. Right? This final line in verse 10 is what gives us a sense of vision as we pray for God's kingdom to come and for his will to be done. Every evening, my wife and I, we pray with our one-and-a-half-year-old daughter uh, before we put her to bed. So we sit her between us, uh, we place our hands on her, and we pray for her rest, we pray for her protection, and we pray for her faith. Now, can you imagine how engaged my daughter is as we pray? Right? Do you think she's closing her hands? Do you think she's folding her, her, sort of closing her hands, closing her eyes and folding her hands in prayer? Not at all. She's looking at us, and she has this very cheeky smile that she'll give to two of us. What's going on? This is very exciting. My daughter is totally disengaged in prayer. Why? Now, one of the main reasons is because she doesn't know that God's presence is there in the room with us and that her papa and mama are engaging in prayer to this God. Now, if me and my wife, if we came from a different religion and we had a shrine or we had some idol, some statues, or we had a picture of some God or, or some cross or something like that, that that we had in front of us as we prayed, now maybe my daughter would engage in prayer more easily, right? To some degree, she'd understand that Papa and Mama really respect this statue or this picture or this symbol, and, you know, they have some important things they would like to say to those idols, and she would probably take the time of prayer more seriously. But as first, as Paul says in 1 Timothy, we worship the King of Ages, the Immortal, the invisible God, the only God. And so our daughter has zero sense of vision of this invisible God that her parents are praying to. To her, prayer is just something that her parents do before putting her to bed, right? It's just part of a ritual, it's a routine for her. And the thing is, we're not that different ourselves. We pray to an invisible God We pray for his invisible kingdom to come. His kingdom is not of this world. We're praying for his invisible will to be done. And if we don't have a sense of vision, then praying these words just becomes a ritual. It becomes part of a prayer routine for us. And if that's all prayer is, then it won't be sustainable. And maybe this is why your prayer life might be really, really dry until some crisis happens until some real, urgent, tangible need arises, then suddenly your prayer life is kicked into top gear. Suddenly your prayers are passionate and alive. Why? Because those crises give you a sense of vision. There's a clarity about what needs to happen. 
You have a clear picture of what you're praying towards. Now, people, the truth is, lasting prayer is sustained by vision, not by urgent needs. Now, again, there's nothing wrong about praying for urgent needs. We should and we must pray for those things. But those crises, they only provide us with a short-term sense of vision. So our, our prayer life cannot be built primarily on prayer requests. Now, even if there's a health crisis every day in our church, and every day there's a political situation in our nation, every day there's financial, social upheaval in our city, what's going to happen to our prayer life? You're going to be exhausted. You're going to be praying on fumes unless there's a larger, long-term vision sustaining your prayer life. Unless there's a broader, overarching vision that helps you make sense of the everyday prayer request that you're asking for. People, we need a broader sense of vision to undergird our prayer life, to sustain our prayer life. And the vision Jesus gives us is on earth as it is in heaven. We need a vision of heaven. And we need a vision of how our world would look like if heaven came down in the here and in the now. So then the question is, how do we gain this vision? How do we gain a vision of heaven? How do we gain a vision of heaven on earth? And the answer is, we look to Jesus. Now, you know, as Jesus is teaching the Lord's Prayer, his disciples are seated right in front of him in the front row. And when Jesus talks about praying that the Father's will be done on earth as it is in heaven, I wonder what picture comes into their mind. Right? What is their vision of heaven on earth? And maybe they recall the places in the Bible where heaven is described, places like in Isaiah and in Ezekiel and in Daniel. And maybe a picture begins to form in their mind of a place where God's glory and God's authority is absolute. But here's what I think. I think that the time that the disciples spent with Jesus would have powerfully shaped their vision of heaven on earth in a very different way. Now, at one point, the disciples probably spoke to Mary, Jesus' mother, and she would have told them how the angel Gabriel appeared to her, announcing Jesus' birth, and how she had become miraculously pregnant, even though she had never had sex. And she would have told them that when Jesus was born, how the angels filled the sky, how the wise men and the shepherds came to pay homage to Jesus. And the disciples would have realized, wow, Jesus' incarnation as a little baby boy was already heaven coming to earth. And then these disciples would have witnessed Jesus' ministry, how Jesus taught the word of God with authority, as though he was the very one who had authored those words. Jesus' teaching left the proud religious teachers speechless, but it uplifted with joy those who were downtrodden. Heaven had come on earth. The disciple witnessed Jesus' miracles. The blind saw, the, the mute spoke, the, the leper was cleansed, the paralyzed leapt to their feet, the dead was raised to life. Thousands of hungry men, women, and children fed with meager rations and then with plenty to spare. A life-threatening storm made calm in an instant. Every miracle Jesus did for a moment 
revealed the good, perfect world that God intended. A world without stain or consequence of sin. And the disciples through that caught a glimpse of heaven coming on earth. Peter, James, and John, they went up the mountain with Jesus and they saw Jesus transfigured in glory. He was radiating the glory of God. Moses and Elijah appeared next to him and they honored Jesus and they saw heaven coming on earth. Later on, the disciples would see Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. And all the people of the city would lay down their cloaks, they put down big leafy uh, plants on the ground, declaring, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The disciples would have had goosebumps as they saw this. Heaven had come on earth. But very soon, Jesus' incredible story that was going in an upward trajectory of glory would suddenly be reversed. Suddenly, Jesus would be betrayed, arrested, charged, whipped, crucified. Now, much later on, the disciples would look back and they would realize how monumental Jesus' death had been. At the cross, the disciples had actually witnessed such a vision of God's justice. Evil that had gone unanswered for so long had been finally held accountable at the cross. The wrath of God was displayed against wickedness and it was satisfied in the death of Jesus. But at the same time, at the cross, the disciples witnessed such a vision of the Father's love. God had shown his enemies mercy. God had repaid rebellion with adoption. God had taken on himself the death and rejection that we all deserve. What grace, what compassion, what love. Heaven had come on earth. And three days later, the disciples find the tomb of Jesus empty. And later, as they gather to eat among themselves behind locked doors, Jesus appears suddenly in their midst and he eats with them. He lets them feel the scars in his hands and in his side. And Jesus had risen from the dead. Heaven had come to earth. People like the disciples, we need to see Jesus. And we need to see him every day. Whether it's in his incarnation or in his earthly ministry, whether it is in his death, in his resurrection, in his ascension, even in his heavenly session as he sits at the right hand of the Father interceding for us. We need to see Jesus every day. Because the more we see Jesus, the more we consider what he has accomplished for us, the more we see his heart and his love, his power and his might And through that, the more we gain a vision of heaven on earth. And when we open our Bibles, we realize that everything that happened in the Old Testament was to prepare us for when Jesus would come to give us a first true taste of heaven here on earth. And then we realize that everything that happened since Jesus in the New Testament is preparing us for when Jesus returns once more to establish heaven fully on earth. People, we need a Christ-oriented vision of heaven on earth. A vision that revolves around Jesus, his authority, his compassion, his mission, his salvation, his impending return. We need a Christ-oriented vision of heaven on earth because that is what will sustain our prayer life through good times and bad times, through times of peace and times of crisis. 
Paul put it like this. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. People, do you want a lasting prayer life? Set your mind on things that are above. Catch a vision of the heaven where Jesus is, of the heaven that Jesus is bringing on earth. So labor every day to look at Jesus so that you can catch a vision of heaven on earth because that is what will sustain a lasting, passionate prayer life. And that is what will keep you praying till Jesus returns, praying till all is right again, and praying till our Christ-oriented vision that we see only by faith finally turns to sight. I want to close with two stories, two stories of how a Christ-oriented vision of heaven on earth transforms prayer. The first is a story from history. The second comes out of a personal experience. In the 1600s, there was a man called Cotton Mather. He was one of the most influential Christians of his day. His father was the sixth president of Harvard University. But Cotton Mather had a problem with his speech. He stuttered. He stuttered. And this meant that he never became a prominent preacher. He never was able to secure influential positions like his father did. Nevertheless, Cotton Mather would pray. He brought his stuttering speech before his father in heaven, and he had such a Christ-oriented vision of heaven on earth that he would pray even as he walked through the town. When he saw a tall person, he would pray, Lord, give this person high achievements in Christ. Let him fear God above others. When he saw a short person, he would pray, Lord, bestow great blessings, tall blessings upon this person. And above all, give him Jesus, the greatest blessing. When he saw a man carrying a burden, he would pray, Lord, help this man carry a burdened soul to his Lord and Redeemer. In other words, let this man bring his own soul and maybe even lead someone else to faith in Jesus. When Cotton Mather saw a man riding a horse, he would pray, Lord, your creature, this horse, serves this man well. Now help this man serve his creator. When a person walked past Cotton Mather and didn't give him any attention, Cotton Mather would pray, Lord, help that man to take due notice of the Lord Jesus Christ. Cotton Mather was a great man in many ways, but he was also a limited man in many ways. Yet when he prayed, he prayed with such a Christ-oriented vision of heaven on earth. That's the first story. The second story is a personal one. In early 2020, right before the borders were closed uh, in light of COVID-19, there was a few of us who flew to KL, Malaysia, for a conference. Uh, this was a conference organized by City to City, and the purpose of the conference was to encourage about six, 700 pastors who were flying in from mainland China. We had uh, Timothy Keller, we had D.A. Carson with us, and they were preaching, and there were some others as well. So there were three days uh, to the conference. On the second day, I heard Carson, D.A. Carson, preach what I still think is probably the best sermon I've ever heard in my life. I mean, it convicted me of my sin. It showed me how beautiful and how powerful a Savior Jesus uh, is to me. 
And when Carson ended the sermon, it was about an hour long. Right? I just went, wow. I mean, I felt like I needed to take a few years to just walk away and, and just think about what I'd heard. But after Carson closed in prayer, and you know these conferences, right? It's always one thing after another. There was another pastor who came up, and I don't know who he was, but he began to lead us in responsive prayer. And I was thinking, man, after a sermon like that, you know, we're all convicted. We've caught such a glimpse of Jesus. You know, why spoil it? Why not just leave it as it is and let's just call it a day? But this pastor came up and he began to pray. And all that we had heard in the sermon and all that we had seen about Jesus began to pour out in his prayer. The pastor began to repent on behalf of all of us who are pastors And I think every pastor in that conference was weeping alongside with me. And then he began to pray for our churches, began to pray for our cities. He began to pray for the Christians and for the lost. And after every line that he prayed, there would be a translator who was translating the same prayer into Mandarin, line by line. And each time they heard the translation, the six to 700 Chinese pastors, they would respond in unison saying, Amen, Amen, Amen. Right? And it was like they were all responding in sync and the whole place was booming with their amens. And I don't know how long we prayed, but we kept praying and praying and praying. And honestly, I felt like I didn't want it to end because we had caught a Christ-oriented vision of heaven on earth. And that was fueling our prayers on and on and on. People, the only thing that can sustain passionate, lasting prayer is a vision of heaven on earth through the lens of the gospel of Jesus Christ. No amount of self-discipline can sustain that. No amount of urgent needs can motivate such a prayer life. We need to see Jesus. We need to see Jesus for our own sakes. But we also need to see Jesus so that we can pray till he returns, till all is right, until our faith is turned to sight. Let's come before the Lord in prayer. Oh Lord, we ask that you would show us your glory. We ask, oh God, that we would see your reality, your power, your authority, your compassion, the reconciling power of the gospel, that we would see it in our everyday life, that we would see it in this world around us. Father, I pray you forgive us, Lord. Lord, we often say we walk by faith and not by sight, but our prayer life reveals the exact opposite, Lord. We pray because we see certain needs coming up. We pray because our sight is stirred, Lord, by an urgent situation. And Lord, there's nothing really wrong with that. But Father, you know that if that's all there is, then is that really faith of God? Father, we need a vision. We need a vision for what Jesus has come to do on this earth, Lord. And that is a vision that comes by faith, Lord. It is not a vision that we can teach ourselves or inculcate in ourselves or paint a picture for one another to see, but Lord, it is a vision that comes through your Spirit. 
as we gaze on Jesus, on His fullness. Lord, grant us that vision, Lord. Give us eyes to see our Saviour. And Lord, with fresh passion, with fresh commitment, would you lead us to pray every day? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, we continue to lift up our daily bread to you. Yes, Lord, give it to us. Give us what we need, Lord. Yes, Father, Restore our relationships with forgiveness and reconciliation. Yes, Father, deliver us from all evil, but above all, let heaven come on earth, Lord. And so we pray this, which we don't often pray, Lord, but Maranatha, come, King Jesus, come. Set all that is broken right again. Humble the proud. Make low the high places and exalt all that is lowly. Bring justice. Bring compassion. Bring a humanity that we have not yet seen, O oh God. And restore us in glory. We come to you and we ask, Lord, for a move of your Spirit in our church. We ask for a move of your Spirit in Singapore. We ask for a move of your Spirit in Asia, in Sri Lanka, in East Timor. Lord, a move of your Spirit across the world, Lord. And then come, Lord Jesus. Come in the flesh and establish your kingdom. Restore all that is broken. Come and bring heaven on earth. We thank you and we bless you. In Jesus' name we pray and all of God's people say, Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon podcast. You can find more of our sermons online on our website at www.agape.org.sg